Hey there, and welcome to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford. So as a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. So not to pull a Steve Harvey here, but I've got a good one for you today. I have a wonderful guest that will be sharing his experiences and knowledge about birds and the environment, as well as some other cool things that I will share here in a bit. In this episode, my guests and I are featuring birdology, involving birds and their roles in the environment, why they're significant, and what trends we are witnessing with our aviary friends that are caused by the great Anthropocene. Speaking of my guest star, meet Keith Peluso, aka Ranger Keith. He's a West Tennessee-based naturalist, environmental educator, content creator, and musician. Keith's interest in nature began at a very early age, mostly in reptiles and amphibians. By the time he was 15, he was teaching nature classes and leading trips at various camps and workshops. Keith then pursued a degree in environmental biology at the University of Tennessee at Martin, where he was a founding member of the UTM Ecology Club. In college, Keith began working for Tennessee State Parks as a park naturalist, leading trips through the swamps at Real Foot Lake, caring for many environmental education animals, mostly raptors and snakes at the park, while rehabilitating numerous birds of prey. His time at Real Foot Lake sparked his love for birding, and he has been hooked ever since. This pushed Keith to become a full-time park ranger for Tennessee State Parks after graduation. While a park ranger, in addition to his emergency operations and management duties, he developed the interpretive aspects of his parks, which included a weekly environmental education class for adults with intellectual disabilities. In 2017, Keith was reaching a career burnout. His wife, Bethany, suggested picking up a hobby that did not involve parks in any way. So he began making music after having put his guitars away for like 10 years. Within a few months, he found himself in an audition for season 15 of NBC's The Voice, where he made it into the top 24. He was then asked to join three-time Grammy-winning Blood, Sweat, and Tears and began touring with them internationally as their lead singer. During the brunt of the pandemic, though, Keith had begun to use birding as a mindfulness practice and decided to share that via TikTok. Having gone back to work as a park ranger to support his family, Keith recorded videos before and after his shifts at the park. The reception of those videos on TikTok and online was extremely supportive, so he ultimately decided that if touring were ever a possibility again, that he would return to it so that he could feature birds and ecological systems in places other than Western Tennessee. And in the summer of 2021, he left the parks and began slowly just doing that. Okay, now that you've been introduced to the topic of the show and my man Ranger Keith, we're going to head into our first commercial break. But stick with us, because when we come back, Keith and I will be giving an introduction to the episode and explaining just what birding is. Cheers. Well, Keith, it's nice having you on here. So, Should I call you Ranger Keith or just Keith? Keith what do you prefer? Fine. Keith is just fine. <laughs> whatever, I respond to whatever. <laughs> I love the Ranger Keith. Whenever I saw that on TikTok, I was like, man, I got to get this guy on the podcast. Man, I, you know, when I, I originally started, uh, I originally only ever used social media for music stuff. And then during the pandemic, I went back to being a park ranger, park ranger for about 10 years altogether. And whenever the pandemic hit, all of my tours and stuff got canceled. I've got a family, I've got a mortgage and things like that. And so I went back to being a park ranger and I was like, well, this is what I'm doing forever. So I changed all my usernames to this is Ranger Keith and started making birding content. And then and things are different now. So if you don't mind, I'm a little curious, what got you bogged down that like you were doing as a ranger that made you just kind of want to stop pursuing? 
that career. I I am a. Thanks for having me, by the way, Sam. Just jump right into it. Uh, you know, working in the parks as a ranger or wherever or in any public service, but I feel feel like a lot of times with things like teachers or park rangers or things like that, those are passion careers. And mm. I am a reckless workaholic. Reckless. And I will sell my soul to whatever it is I'm doing right at that very moment. And so I started my career with Tennessee State Parks as a seasonal and then went in as a, uh, as soon as I graduated from college, uh, jumped in full time as a ranger at Mousetail Landing State Park and spent my career as a full time ranger between there and David Crockett State Park. And in Tennessee State Parks, you are as a ranger, you are like the management of the parks. You manage all, all the personnel and things like that. You're also emergency operations. So you're fire, medical, law enforcement, all of that stuff together. And then you also do all the interpretation and then environmental education and things like that on the park. And then also a lot, quite a bit of maintenance too, depending on the park you're in. The first park where I was a full-time ranger had like six employees. And so everybody cuts trail. Everybody cleans up, everybody mows grass, everybody weed eats and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And so I loved it. I loved it. And, and that was my entire life for a long time. I was on our, uh, our special operations response team for Tennessee state parks for a long time, which is like a statewide critical incident team where when bad things happen, you get called out to that stuff. And, uh, and so I did that for a long time and I made a lot of friends that are closer to me than some of my family is, you know, but there's very little room for anything else. Oh. And so by the time we were in the middle of 2017 or so, I knew my, my wife and I were, were getting ready to, to have our, our son. And I, I knew I wanted to kind of slow down or at least find some separation for myself and my family, like be able to mentally shut things off. I lived on the park, like right smack dab in the middle of the park, as you do, which is is great. That's a But living at work is a double-edged sword. Like I could come out of my door and be on a trail, but you're also always at work. You're always and on call. You're always on call. Live right next to the maintenance shop, which is where all of my employees were. Which is mm -hmm. you're you're there for your people. That's your job as the leader, you know. And so, my wife was like, "Dude, you need a hobby other than this. Like, I'm seeing signs of burnout in you, you know." And that's a difficult thing to admit to yourself when you feel like you're extremely lucky to have the life that you have. Is dealing with that burnout. And also loving what you do, you know what I mean? But I felt yeah. like I needed to carve some time or carve like a space for myself that wasn't related to that. And so I was like running ultra marathons and stuff like that. I was like taking off all, all this stuff, but I was still on trails on the park that I worked. And so I was like inevitably seeing like things I needed to fix or things I need to do <laughs> and all that. And my wife was like, look, man, you, you need to do something totally unrelated to that. So you have all these guitars and stuff that are in closets that have been in there for 10 years. I quit playing music when I was in college because I had to buckle down and all that stuff. Then I started my career. You're working every weekend and you live an hour away from the nearest grocery store. So you're not going to go play shows and stuff. And so I started right. playing, playing some music and put some cover songs up on YouTube and stuff. And then that's where we kind of had a monkey wrench thrown in there. And I ended up 
on the voice and all of that. Yeah, stuff. that's crazy. Yeah. So <laughs> did somebody just see you on YouTube and they were like, we got to get this guy on. So that's so cool. Yeah. So I, I like don't watch TV. I do now, but it's all like children's shows because I'm a four year old, you know, but yeah. like at the time I was like, we didn't have cable or anything. I didn't know how the show worked, but I got an email from somebody of my like, you know, 30 subscribers on YouTube. And they were like, yo man there's this voice audition in nashville i think you should really go try and i was like well what could it hurt to try and yeah, right. uh so i went in there and uh and sang like a couple of john prine songs and a ray lamontane song and they were like hey man we want you to come be on the voice and so i was like oh man what am i gonna do with my career and so my wife was like man if you don't do this you will regret it forever my wife's brilliant She's the brains in the operation, for sure. Seems like a great person. For sure. She is indeed. But yeah, uh, so I ended up on season fifteen of The Voice. On Kelly, I started off on Blake's team and then went to the semifinal or went to the top twenty-four with Kelly Clarkson. Wow, which was super fun. Uh, Heck yeah! And then I got picked up with Blood, Sweat, and Tears after that. Right, right after I got off the show, like well, maybe a couple of months after I got off the show, I got a, just a random phone call. I don't even know how he got my number. <laughs> from uh, the manager with blood sweat and tears and he's like hey man you want to come be the lead singer of blood sweat and tears and like, they well when when do we start rehearsals and stuff and uh wow. he was like no rehearsals you got a month before your first show you need to learn all the songs here's a bunch of recordings of what was on the original records and then also the way it's changed over the past like 50 years you know wow because things like naturally kind of evolve as new players come and go. It's sure. beautiful. But uh, yeah, he was like, hey, you need to, you need to learn the average of this. There's no rehearsal. You're going to meet the band. And like when you get here and play your first show in Fort Lauderdale in front of like 8,000 people. And I was wow. like, this is 100% a scam. I'm showing up to Fort Lauderdale and somebody's going to steal my kidneys. But <laughs> <laughs> turned out to be legit <laughs> wow and so so i toured with them all of uh 2019 and beginning of 2020 and then uh, when the pandemic hit we went home and so uh that's amazing we're home for months i about lost my mind and i decided to go back to what what i know how to do and i know that i'm i'm good at and so i went back to being a ranger until i started on TikTok and things kind of worked yeah. out again so strangely yeah, isn't that crazy? Now you have how many how many followers do you have on TikTok now? We just hit a hundred thousand like Jeez. two days ago, <laughs> which is wow. I'm I'm so grateful. I mean, I I'm I'm grateful even though we're there, even though every now and again I take like three weeks off of social media altogether, and just vanish, and I work nice. in my garden and I go bird watching by myself and and all of that stuff. I just think that you know, if especially if if my main part of my page is to do environmental education and also promote mindfulness and stuff, if I'm not being mindful and if I'm starting to look at numbers instead of yeah. actual humans, then I should take time off and go reconnect with real life. You know, man, I totally agree with that. I can't get like a good rhythm down on TikTok either. It's, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a slave to, you know, to the platform. Sure. Whenever I find something that I would like to stitch and explain, I do it. Whenever I have a great idea, when somebody messages me like, hey, you should do something like that, I put it on a list and 
when I get to it, I, I get to it. I work a full-time job. I, I run this podcast, I edit and I have to right. market and that, it's like, it, it'll get there. But, um, man, that's what a story what a story. Hell. And you know, what's funny. Like I had something similar whenever we had the big numbers podcast with Matthew Broussard. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're quite familiar, but he's a famous actor and comedian and he's a mathematician. Uh, he's good friends with Matt Kirshen, but anyways, so I put out like a, a post on, on a subreddit. I think it was our mm-hmm. math. And I'm like yeah. looking for someone who, who wants to do a mathematics podcast. And he DM'd me and he was telling me who he was. He sent me his YouTube and I'm like, no way. Same thing. I'm like, somebody's trying to steal my kidney. There's, there's just no way. Like, <laughs> this is a scam. It's a scam. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, it's funny. Like, you know, we talked and I'm like, that's actually Matthew Broussard. Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah. And, and now, and now you're on my show and it, it, I'm getting more and more, you know, uh, reputable and interesting people that have good following. So like really happy to have now to come full circle, really happy to have you. on. I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you think I'm uh, <laughs> important. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you got a, you got a really cool background and Thanks, you know, I think, it's really and another thing is I was really excited about this podcast because, you know, you know, a, a lot about birds. And I think to the lay person or someone who just, you know, maybe even just nature lovers in general, don't typically think about birds. It's not like on the forefront of their mind. Mm-hmm. Right. When they think about wildlife, they think of lions or tigers or or bears literally not sure. to be so scripted there but like you know they don't think about yeah. birds they don't it's, think it's, about finches or vultures or right. you know it, it's just not there but yeah charismatic megafauna that's what they're going for it's the, that's the yeah. term for it in, <laughs> in conservation biology charismatic megafauna you know i i didn't get into birds until i was in college um but i yeah. i started working as a naturalist and like okay. an environmental educator when I was like 14, 15. Uh, but I, my entire life until I started uh, birding pretty hardcore in college, I wanted to be a herpetologist. When I was like a little bitty kid, I had posters of snakes and frogs on my, on my wall instead nice. of like cars and stuff. Uh, <laughs> I remember my third grade teacher, Miss Jenkins at Marion Elementary School, we were doing like, what do you want to be when you grow up thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, she was like, Keith, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a herpetologist. And she said, I don't know what that is, but you should probably wash your hands. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So, my whole life was to go to school, go for biology, go to grad school mm-hmm. and, and do all that. And I wanted to go for herpetology. And then kind of at the last minute, I started getting into birds. And I started working for the parks while I was in college as like a seasonal yeah. ranger. And then just jumped right into being a park ranger instead of said hmm. grad school and stuff well what what drew you to to birds man i uh i guess i can tell you this story later but when I, when i got when i got started i was a seasonal ranger i was a park naturalist they're either called park naturalists or seasonal interpretive rangers or whatever it is there are a bunch of different agencies that have the same thing mm-hmm. But I was like guiding tours and stuff at real foot lake state park and it's part of a thirty thousand acre swamp lake complex that's about three miles from the mississippi river in northwest like the very top northwest corner of tennessee okay and uh, like the top of the lakes in kentucky but at the time i was guiding tours and stuff through the swamps and i when when i was part of my duties there was 
wildlife rehab. And so I was doing a lot of bird of prey work where people would bring in injured hawks and owls and eagles and stink, things like that. And so we would, we would take care of them and release them back into the wild. And if they weren't, they would be, if they couldn't be re released, they would be an educational animal. And so part of my job was to travel all over the place with like, you know, the glove and the, you have like a hawk on a glove and show it to kids and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that kind of, that's just part of my job. And that's where I started getting into it. I didn't get into like going out in the field and birding until later, but, nice. but yeah, that's how I got into it. I mainly went to real foot though, to, I got a job for the parks originally because I was doing research there. My undergraduate research was a, was a herpetofaunal survey of, the real foot lake and lake Iceland refuges and so basically all summer was just catching snakes and frogs and measuring them and letting them go and nice. say oh i caught this many of this species and this many of this species and you know that stuff's important but but i Definitely. originally started working for the park so that i could live on site there and kind of started my career had no plans of being a park ranger at all until i was there for four years and then i was like well i'll go be a ranger that's awesome so I guess now would be a good opportunity to explain what you do on TikTok. Like, what is birding? Sure. There's a lot of arguing, I think, about, about birding and stuff because some people separate birding and bird watching into two different things where typically bird watching oh. is when you're watching feeder birds. And this is all, this is not a science thing. This is just like a culture of birding thing. And then birding is when you're going out and making lists of stuff you see out in a habitat or, or whatever. And that's kind of generally, you know, the discussion. But for me, I keep some bird feeders at home, but I'm mainly more into going out and counting how many that I see and identifying them. And my main thing with that is looking at migratory patterns. I love seeing when new things show up and then watching when they leave too, as far as migrants and stuff goes, and then seeing how things change their behavior throughout the year. If they're a resident, some of our resident birds that stay here year round change a lot in behavior from winter to summer. And so it's just fascinating to me. There are a lot of parts of birding culture where they're typically called twitchers or listers where people are working on a life list. Most people have like a life list of all the different species they've seen, or um, you have like a life list by county or life list by state or country or whatever, where they're the main thing that they're addicted to is adding a new species to that list. Um, mm. And so that's where you hear stories of people like this, this year we had a stellar sea eagle that's, that's been, uh, in North America and they aren't typically. And so people are flying in from everywhere to go see the stellar sea eagle or, you know, I drove a long way to go see a snowy owl one time because we don't typically get those very often in Tennessee, but that's not really uh, what I'm into. I'm into noticing patterns. You have some, some extremes though, for sure. Oh, as interesting. Far as going and seeing new species or some new vagrant that's blown in from somewhere that, you know, like a this past year, we had several limpkin that showed up in Tennessee that people got really excited about. And so everybody was looking for a limpkin. We had a burrowing owl in Tennessee. And I'm not sure how many times that has happened before, but not very many times. And people were driving from all over the place to go see this burrowing owl. You know, wow. the closest one would be in like South Florida or out West, you know. Oh, wow. Wow. So I guess... With you said that whenever you go on tours with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, that you also try to get some birding in. So, what's the farthest you've traveled to do this practice? 
we do some touring in uh we're kind of all over the u.s but we do some touring into europe too and so i've done some birding in norway uh this past year i did wow. uh, uh we were in germany for like just a couple of days and mm. no sleep to be had because we were doing shows and stuff like that and then you know the time is different and so you're you're jet lagged and uh i ended up i didn't have a car but we were we were in uh what town were we in i can't remember it was oh munster was oh. we were staying in munster i can't remember the name of the town but it was beautiful wonderful and uh I was looking at a map, looking at eBird hotspots on eBird.org from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. That's where all birders put in their lists and stuff, oh. which is a brilliant community science project because then you're looking at the geographic distributions of birds in real time. Mm. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant as far as like uh, value to science goes. Yeah. Um, but I was looking at eBird hotspots and I found one like probably – 10 or 12 miles north of the hotel I was staying. I don't have a, I didn't have a car there. It was in Germany. I can't read any of the road signs. And this is like rural Germany too. And so it's like, oh boy. I got to get to this place. I got to find a, I got to find a, uh, like a bus or something that'll take me there at like five in the morning. And, uh, but I, I was talking to the person that worked at the front desk at the hotel. I was like, I'm a bird watcher and I want to go see these birds at this one place. And they were like, here, borrow my bicycle. And they let me borrow their bicycle and ride it off into the German countryside before daylight. But I was on this enormous waterfowl refuge. Wow. Before daylight. And it was absolutely incredible. So good. Wow. I think wow. I, I, I think I saw like 33 lifers for me, which would be like 33 new species for my life list. You know, wow. That's yeah. really cool. So let's finish off here. We'll go and then we'll go into our first commercial break, but what is your favorite bird? Man, Just curious. Yeah. yeah. Changes with the, it changes from week to week. Really? You oh, know, really? Yeah, okay. probably. Cause I get excited about new migrants when they come in right now, uh, Mississippi kites. I saw my first season of Mississippi kite, I think three days ago. Uh, but this time of year, they is when they first show up. Mississippi kites are absolutely incredible. They're it's a, a relatively large bird, but they, the the way they fly, they they just look like a piece of paper. It's just everything looks effortless to them. I think That's it's amazing. really cool. I always know that they're about to show up here because the mockingbird that lives in my front yard. Probably about two weeks before Mississippi kites show up, the mockingbird starts doing a Mississippi kite call. They sound like, no way. Yeah, no way. I hear that mockingbird doing like, wow, Mississippi kites are going to be here soon. Whenever you do birding, do you sit there and call, try to call them in? Do you try to mimic their sounds or you just like to no. listen to them in their environment? No, there are some people that do that. There's a kind of a code of ethics that I, I think people should pay more attention to. There's a great code of ethics on the American Birding Association's website, which is a great starter. Um, I've done back when I first started, I didn't know the difference between like biological surveys and just playing outside because I was a biology student and it was all the same to me. So we, we did surveys with playback like in october in the fall we're doing owl surveys where we'll play an owl call and count how many callbacks we're seeing how wow. many owls in the like in a uh, are in a given area but i don't do that when i'm on my own because uh you're making birds do stuff that they wouldn't normally do and so yeah. uh there are also some things that people do 
there's a, a thing people do called pishing. You're you're imitating the the stress call or like the intruder alert call of a of oh. a Carolina chickadee or a tufted titmouse or a Carolina wren. They all make that same call. It sounds like psh, psh, psh. and so a lot of people when they're trying to coax a bird out so they can see it better will go. Psh, 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 psh. But oh, but I, I don't do that. It I don't. Seems like another portion of that that would make it kind of unethical is like if you're if you're trying to mimic these birds and they're you know trying to mate, right? right? Wouldn't that would that that would skew that process? Right. Yep. Right. Or yeah. well, not just if they're trying to mate, but if they're trying to attract a mate, you're going to unnecessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. stress them out because then you're putting an imaginary competing male, right, in that area. Or if you're doing a stress call for like a Carolina wren or a tufted titmouse, you're telling them there's danger right there. You know, yeah. and so personally, it's not something I do, but I, I'm more into just being there and seeing how they're trying to be as inconspicuous as a six foot three giant hairy man can be, you know, and just just letting them do their thing and watching what they do, you know. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, we're going to run into our first commercial break. And whenever we come back, Keith and I are going to be talking about, well, Keith is going to be talking about <laughs> birds and their influence on the environment. So stick around and find out. I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolite Apparel. Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol, such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. Well, we're back for the second segment of Birdology with Ranger Keith. So this segment is going to be on birds and their significance to the environment. So there are many significances and we're going to try to cover them. And actually we took a poll from my, you know, my following and we kind of outlined some of the key significances for you. So Keith, would you want to go through the first one? And that's, that's actually on pollination. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that, you know, the primary pollinators other than, you know, wind or 
typical types of erosion is is bees but also up there is butterflies and birds so would you like to take it from there yeah i mean there there are lots of butterflies and birds bees all, not just honeybees either but there are loads and loads of solitary bees that we have and stuff Correct. too but there are definitely some birds uh that are pollinators and some that you, you might not even that you might even overlook everybody kind of knows about hummingbirds there are a few hummingbirds too that are very specific to certain kinds of flowers and those flowers depend on those birds in order to pollinate uh, because a lot of other things can't reach down the, the way the hummingbirds would right uh but also orioles like baltimore orioles and orchard orioles are just showing back up here in west tennessee uh, but there are several different kinds across the world but orioles do eat a lot of fruit and they will get into nectar and they're 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 a great pollinator too but there are several elsewhere to the honey creepers honey eaters some of the parrots are pollinators uh so oh. yeah there, there are definitely many out there well that makes sense i mean any bird that really comes into contact with you know the flora and then they carry it and right. it's kind of that that process so that, mm -hmm. that makes sense and right i mean there's there's many different types of pollinators but birds do a great aspect of that so the next one that that kind of came in was seed dispersal i know you you kind of gave a little segue there a little bit on uh eating fruit so would you like to take that over sure i think it's an it's important to to realize too that these are just small examples but when you look yeah. at giant ecosystems if you look at a species that's endemic to that system that's been there for a long time there it is a piece of that system it's a piece of that web and so right. we can talk about things like pollination and seed dispersal and and uh, predation and, and things like that. But there are probably factors that make that species important to that system that may even be overlooked. Right. We're talking about a species or we're talking about a group that has been evolving for 65 million years, plus or minus a few after the KT extinction. So. Mm -hmm after mammalia kind of took over the world after the reptiles fell off from from the kt extinction birds began to flourish mm -hmm. so over 65 million years they have evolved in many ways to impact the ecosystem right and it, it, we'll probably talk about this later with migration and stuff like that but you're not just looking at one ecosystem either and a lot and right. that's one of those things that i think that with migratory birds you're looking at a, a bird that it doesn't just go somewhere else and take off for a while it's not on vacation it's an integral part of the systems that it visits along the way in the system that it lands in too and so you're looking at a species that's important for ecosystems across a hemisphere instead of just like in one mountain range there are some in, there are important things to think about there but yeah with seed dis dispersion one of the coolest examples that we have around here is what's the uh, mistletoe Oh, because mistletoe never touches the ground. It's it's uh, the the seeds are spread by birds. They they will eat those seeds, and those seeds have a special coating on them that as soon as the bird poops it out, it's sticky, and so it sticks to the branches, and that's where it it stays. That's how the plant grows. It's because the wow. the seeds when right when they come out, they're they're very sticky, and that's how a mistle mistletoe will spread from tree to tree. Um, a lot of times, up and down. Uh, migratory pathways of birds take quite a bit. I, a great example, when I, I used to work at Mousetail Landing State Park, it's like two and a half miles along the Tennessee River okay. of, of bank and like kind of the 
the like rugged country right next to the the Tennessee River and right in that gap between West and Middle Tennessee. Uh, there's this point that goes that's called Spring Creek and th- there are so many birds that use the river there as like as a, they're they're looking at the river as they're migrating and stuff. And uh, there's this huge oak tree that's way out on the point in the river. You cannot miss it. And so I would just think it would be a great spot for a tired bird to rest. And that thing is covered in mistletoe because there are inevitably birds coming up and down the river and they will land right there on that tree. And do so, their yeah. business. Nice. Yeah, mistletoe needs birds for sure. <laughs> There are also negative aspects of that where uh, we see a lot of invasive plants that are spread by birds too. things like uh, Chinese privet, sacred bamboo uh, um, or Nandina. There are, there are several. What's a, another good one? I saw one today actually, and I'm trying to remember what it's called. Lily turf. It's also um, it's a, like an ornament. Most invasive species we have are ornamental plants, but, but Lily turf, Nandina, Chinese privet, there are several that are, that are spread by birds that are invasive species too. And, uh, and that makes sense. mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about it, whenever you think invasive species and you're talking about hemisphere, it's, it's definitely coming from another, (laughs) another portion of the world. So, yeah, well, I mean, those were, those were originally brought as ornamentals by humans and stuff, but if you're trying to say you're managing a natural area and you're trying to keep that ecosystem intact, those invasive species have a negative effect on the biodiversity there. And so you can spend a lot of time and energy and in many cases, money clearing out Chinese privet and stuff. But a lot of, if the more birds you have, you are going to have to constantly look for, uh, for Chinese privet there. That leads me to a really good question. So if you have these Chinese privet and then you have all these birds coming in that are bringing this invasive species in, what can you do, I guess, not not negatively to hurt the bird population, but to deter the bird population away from that specific ecosystem? You, well, so you it don't. doesn't bring in them. You oh, don't. Yeah. You're, you're, trying to, you're trying to set up most of the time, especially if you're managing a natural area or whatever, that's already a fragmented habitat more than likely. And so what you're trying to do is maintain that system. You're wanting more biodiversity. And so the birds are fine to come in, but you mm-hmm. need to clear Chinese privet as it comes in, clear Nandina as it comes in, clear things like Mahonia or Oregon grapes, another name for it, uh, okay. as they come in. Okay. It is so, a lot of work. <laughs> I get it. And it's, it's just a repeated kind work. Of a, kind of a constant thing. Once, once, once Chinese and it, it, Chinese privilege is one we deal with quite a bit in West Tennessee that is spread by birds. But once it becomes very established, it'll grow into a tree. And so it shades the understory out, which prevents the native understory plants from developing in there. And it will eventually even prevent tree replacement, too. So it'll destroy a forest within a few decades if you if you let it go long enough. Wow. And so it's much easier to get rid of when it's very small. <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times if somebody I've seen this on, on several like system restorations or whatever is there's a special attachment for a bobcat uh, piece of equipment uh-huh. or they they just come in and we'll just grind the entire plant. And so you're basically just clearing the whole thing out and then they'll uh, pull up the new ones as they come up. Huh. Wow. It's yeah. a lot of work though, man. Yeah, it's long I summers doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, but <laughs> I guess somebody has to do that, you know, so we don't have an ecosystem collapse. Right. Right. But the more, but the more people know about, the more people know about invasive plants and how we can, uh, how much of an effect they have on the biodiversity of those ecosystems that they end up uh, dropping into, uh, the better off we are. 
Absolutely. I totally agree. So the next one that came in from the community was based on predators. So they, they prey on many different types of arthropods, rodents, et cetera. So would you like to expand on that? Sure. One of the best examples that I've seen, I recently did this is another like bird watching while on tour story, but here in West Tennessee, it's hard to find a barn owl. It just doesn't happen very often. But I did a residency last year at uh, Blue Note Jazz Club in Napa, California. We were there for like four days. It's like a three show a day thing. And I had some birders that just hit me up that are incredible out there. They're like, we're going to take you bird watching every day. And that we went out on these uh, on these vineyards and wineries and they use barn owls as a as a rodent control. And it, like oh. every I'm not sure what the distance measurement of that you need for each box, but it felt like every hundred yards up and down these gravel roads, there would be a barn owl box. They're everywhere and they help wow. control that rodent population. Wow, man, mm -hmm. I wonder what the radius. So you're thinking that the radius of what they really control or hunt is 100 yards. I would, I would suspect it would be huge. I don't know if the boxes are everywhere up there. And for somebody that doesn't get to see barn owls very often, it just feels like there's one like it just feels like they're mailboxes, you know. Uh, wow. But there are quite a few barn owls out there and they use them as, as rodent. They encourage them to come out onto the vineyard just as rodent control. Definitely. And, you know, one thing just popped into my mind in terms of just pest control, as our environment warms, the our arthropods are going to start moving north. So like one thing that's very relevant is the the movement of like malaria north because of all the mosquitoes, the mosquito sure. populations that are moving north. So birds are going to be absolutely like vital to just like fighting different pests. And also, I mean, it's like a natural pesticide, right? For farmers. That's what I like. Like you people, want birds. A lot of people put up things like purple martin boxes and things like that and encourage barn swallows and things like that because they're they're eating a lot of a lot of insects. Definitely. Um, there's some there are some crazy things that are going on with insects and birds as as the climate changes. Uh, but a lot of it a lot of it has to do with the insect. We're actually in a vast insect decline. Very uh, true very yeah. true yeah so we're worried about things like disease from malaria and stuff like that but ecologically um we're losing a lot of biodiversity and so uh... very true i think we had a, a viral epidemiology episode man it was a couple months ago and we were just talking about like all the uh viruses and i guess i should have mentioned that 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 the you know arthropods are actually in decline i really want to have an entomology episode and, and yeah and, uh, go over that but it's I guess that's that's a that's a positive though to have to have birds in the area to to kind of take out and, and be a natural insecticide rather sure. than something that we do as humans to our farms. Right. Yeah. So another thing that that was brought up was scavenging. And I know this kind of goes hand in hand with what I wanted to talk about. But yeah. um would you would you like to introduce scavenging? Well, the Vultures are the, the main one people think of. Some of the corvids scavenge as well. And bald eagles do quite a bit of scavenging, more than people would think, too. You know, everybody yeah. thinks of a bald eagle as this giant, majestic, charismatic megafauna. But but they do quite a bit of scavenging, too. I, I saw a, a talk at a Tennessee Academy Science a number of years ago where they were uh, setting up uh, trail cams on deer carcasses and things like that. And there were quite a few 
eagles that will come in. And then any, anybody that spends some time where it's snowy will tell you that they do quite a bit of scavenging on the on the sides of roads and stuff like that too. Wow. They're not a main scavenger. They're mostly a fish yeah. and waterfowl eater, but there are several birds that will scavenge other than vultures. Yeah, you usually see what like vultures, uh, crows, and ravens, right? Uh, those mm -hmm. are the ones that come to my mind first. So one thing that I keep seeing, and it, it like pops up every once in a while, is how intelligent ravens are. Can you attest yeah. to that? All of the, all of the corvids, man. Uh, the cr crows, ravens, jays, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, you Very know, you smart. know what's funny? I was on my construction site today, and this is mm -hmm. so weird because we were having this podcast today, and I was wearing a bird shirt. Oh, nice! <laughs> so weird. <laughs> so I'm walking back. I'm walking back. And we have people that like blow whistles if we're flying stuff across with cranes. So everybody's mm. aware. Yeah. There was no cranes running and there was a raven just chilling out on a pile of steel and it was mimicking the whistles. Yeah. I was like, yo, that's amazing. Yeah. The ravens are so smart. Like I've seen videos of ravens like trying to talk like mimic what humans say it's so mm -hmm. crazy mm -hmm. a lot of wow. if you if you look at a, lo a lot of people that have befriended crows or or ravens or any of the corvids over the years especially crows because they're very social not only will they like mimic your sounds and stuff but they will use that information to tell other people other other people other crows that you are near I've seen really? where, where people will um, that are trying to befriend crows or feeding crows or whatever. A lot of times they'll walk outside with whole peanuts and they'll make a sound like psh, 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 or some kind of sound to get the crow's attention. And if they do that every time while they feed, while they place the food down, <clears throat> eventually those crows, whenever you walk outside and place the food down, that crow will make whatever sound you're making. Be like, psh, 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 like, hey, the lady is here with the peanuts wow and that's how but that's your name now you just gave them your name your name nice. is now yeah and then and and crows are very social and they'll teach their families and offspring too and so you may have a friend in those for several generations after that as well not only wow. that but they will also hold a grudge for <laughs> generations too yeah you know, yeah it's true against <laughs> certain places that are dangerous or um, they're very smart and they teach their friends um, what they're seeing Wow. Yeah, the Corvids are brilliant. I recently read a book. This is a great book. Just came out. This came out in March of last year. Uh, this is not this is not about crows. This is about caracaras. This is about striated caracaras. But all of the caracaras are absolutely brilliant. Uh, this is by Jonathan Myberg, a most remarkable creature. Like the intelligence of some of these birds is is it's amazing. So I would definitely recommend that book. Okay. Definitely. It's definitely going on my I'll list. send you a copy as a gift. Oh, man. Wow, I'd really appreciate that. If you find time between your, like, two jobs and, <laughs> you know, your busy life, you know. I definitely enjoy some reads. But nice. uh, jumping back to what we were talking about, we were talking about scavenging. And you, you said about vultures. And kind of getting ready for this podcast, I was doing a little bit of a dive on vultures. I'm like, it's so crazy. You know, the stuff that, that like the lay person, like myself, I don't know anything about birds other than I just appreciate them. But vultures are amazing uh, yeah. pieces of nature. Like, so apparently, if you know anything about chemistry, they have a very low pH, like stomach acid, like mm -hmm. very low. 
some of the species has like a pH of one, mm. like very acidic. And if yeah. they're in the presence of a predator, they will vomit on them to oh, yeah. ward off their predators. They they absolutely will. But the like the scavenging aspect, the main reason why how, how it's it's their nature's calling is they will break down, they'll eat up these dead carcasses that are more than likely full of disease. So they're, what they're really doing is saving the rest of the ecosystem from diseases like, you know, rabies, malaria, et cetera, you know, and I find that so fascinating. That's they, you know, we always just think about like, oh, they're a scavenger. They're just, you know, eating, you know, dead organisms before the fungi get to them or bacteria or what have you. But to say that like they're actually saving different species from exposure. So like, I can't remember, I watched a Ted, a, a TEDx video where I think it was China where they had like 20,000 some deaths last year due to uh, rabies, because there's like, if you look at the population decrease of vultures relative to the increase of, of rabies outbreak hmm. in China, it's like directly proportional. Like wow. directly. Yeah. Rats, wow. dogs, they'll, they'll get rabies and they'll just go infect people mm. or whatever animals, et cetera. And then wow. yeah, it's, it's, they just spread disease. And that's one of their big natural callings is to that's save great. the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. That part of it being a system is those nutrients have to go back into the system. You know, they're just making it just expediting the process, you know? Yeah. Oh, and, and of course, I forgot to say this, that, you know, because the reason why they're saving the ecosystem is because they're ingesting these viruses and the mm. viruses come in contact with the low pH acidity and then it like kills it. That's so fascinating. Right. That's You're so turn, fascinating. turning diseased uh, carrion into clean vulture poop. <laughs> and <then> it, it, <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> And uh, one thing I really, I guess, want to raise a, a little bit of an awareness of is in the video, they were talking about one of the reasons why there's such a huge drop off in population for vultures is maybe this is also a preface to the next segment. So in Africa with, with poachers, like poachers that are, that are going after like rhinos and, and elephants, what they'll do is they'll try to cover their tracks by injecting a poison into the the, the carcasses of the bodies Whoa. and it's actually killing vultures uh at a in an unprecedented pace that way the vultures don't give signal to the local authorities that poaching is going on in that area oh i see yeah, yeah. so like one a tedx video said that one rhinoceros uh that is injected with poison kills about 500 vultures man yeah crazy but i mean it's just to just to show importance that like they need to be in the environment they need to stick around to right. help mitigate disease spread so, right think conservation gets really really complicated when you're talking about a species that lives across an entire hemisphere you know absolutely yeah mm -hmm. the, the, and even like they're so like majestic some of them can fly at like I can't remember if it was 11,000 feet or 11,000 meters, but it was like, so like it was farther, like farther up into the atmosphere than mm -hmm. any, any other bird species. Yeah. Like when turkey vultures and stuff migrate or even the hawks will, will migrate in the daytime, they do a, uh, a behavior called kettling 
And most of our passerine, like our songbirds and stuff like that, are migrating at night. So they're flying super fast at night. But the, the big birds are migrating in the day because they're taking advantage of thermals. And so something like a turkey vulture that's migrating is going to find the thermal and it circles higher and higher and higher and higher. And a lot of times you'll see several vultures, hundreds of vultures even, in the same thermal. And it circles higher and higher and then dumps itself out of the top of that thermal and glides all the way to the next one. And so they can fly for miles and miles or migrate for miles and miles and just barely even flap. Oof. Taking advantage of uh, Bernoulli's a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the raptors do that and the vultures. Jeez, I wish that was something I could do. Be really yes. With airfare, the the cost of airfare today. Yeah, it's way way better for the environment too. Oh, for sure, for sure. So uh, I don't know how. I'm sure you're very familiar with this, but I want to get your take on it. So with birds and their migration patterns. Now I'm curious. I've I've seen some things that some scientists are saying that birds have a, a compound uh, related to in their nose mm-hmm. and in their skulls that, you know, allow them to see or map out the Earth's magnetic fields so that, that they know what's north and south. Mm-hmm. And with that metal in there, some, some form of iron, I can't remember what it was, but like that kind of tells them a direction heading. Have you ever heard of that? I, I yeah. mean, maybe that might sound really that's, pseudo, but maybe it's not. I don't know. That's in some of them. They, uh, Scott Widenthal actually talks about that, about uh, like navigation strategies across different taxa of, of birds quite a bit in his first book, Living on the Wind. That was the book that actually got me started. Like whenever I first started birding, I read this book and it blew my mind. And that's that's when I really got started. But there are across different groups of birds, there are different strategies. And a lot of times it's a combination of several where there's they may be sensing electromagnetic fields. They may also be using landmarks. They may also be using the stars or a combination of all those things. A lot of times with uh, I know with like the the ducks and geese, well, there there are there are birds that inherently know their migration routes. They're born, and at a certain critical day length, something clicks and they say, "Oh, I must go," and they go to a place they've never been before, but they know it's there. Some of them are taught their migratory patterns, like some of the cranes and the ducks and geese. They learn it from their parents, and so that's why you know when you yeah. see a bunch of Canada geese at your park that never go anywhere else because they were never taught to go anywhere else by their parents or that's why here when we have uh everybody gets really excited when we have whooping cranes that come through uh, tennessee and end up in north alabama they're endangered and we have i think last year we had like 17 i could be wrong at wheeler national wildlife refuge 17 or 17 whooping cranes in tens of thousands of sandhill cranes and that's because whooping cranes population went so low that they forgot their migratory routes and so people started releasing young whooping cranes with the sandhill cranes so that the sandhill cranes will show the whooping cranes where to go oh so nice. some birds know some birds have crazy powers and and know where they're supposed to go and some birds have to be taught you know a lot of and that's that's the of beauty of evolution man you yeah, know like it it's just nature trying out different stuff mm-hmm. wow that's so cool and then of course like you said it could just be it doesn't have to be it does or it doesn't use this and that's it, it could 
could be using multiple things. Right. Yeah. Right. I forget the the study. I, I should I, I should have uh, looked up the paper, but Scott Widensall references a paper where they tested burden navigation abilities through several different ways, and a lot of it was using uh, like putting a bird in a like in an enclosure and then adjusting the day length of the room to see what triggered the migratory instinct. Uh, they would put fake star maps over it so that the bird was using like using fake star maps and uh, and showing which way it would try to fly. And so there there are several different ways that, that they tested that to see what kind of combination different birds are using. That's a cool experiment. That's, Man, that's yeah. really cool. Wow. Wow. So we do have one more thing. And it seems that the last thing that, that was important to the audience was indicators of environmental factors across the grand scale do you want to do you want to elaborate and then we can round out go to commercial break and and get into segment three sure i think it's a great way to segue into segment three years because we're definitely i think birds from a, a migratory patterns and things like that from an environmental educator perspective it's a great to get people interested in complex systems and complex problems that we may have because once you see a bird that's I think there's a, a technique that we use called rapid bioassessment where if you're looking at the health of a stream you can go in and take a little measurement of the dissolved oxygen of the stream you can do use a little tool and measure the turbidity or the stream velocity or whatever or you can look at the aquatic macroinvertebrates and the fish and things like that that live in the stream that are constantly sampling those water conditions and look at the tolerance levels of those organisms across um, different variables and look at what the stream is like long term. And so if we are looking at birds or trying to teach people about things that are going on in the environment or getting them to ask questions um, about things that are going on in the world, look at a, like a cute critter that is flying across an ocean and sampling the ecosystems between two continents. That's where you can draw broad strokes and show people the interconnectedness of, of, all, of all of it. And so I think that's a, um, there's a lot of value in that for, for environmental educators or in, uh, or in science communicators. Definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. I like that. There's, there's a numbers game to it, but then there's the observations right. and wow. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if you, even if you're not getting the migratory paths, you don't have the numbers that you used to, they're, they're eating differently or um, you know, they're, they're spreading this invasive species, you know, this year and they weren't last year or, or what have you. There's so many different cases out there that can tell you what's going on in the world. Right. Something like one species of shorebird that's migrating up and down an entire coastline. They are depending on us on the horseshoe crabs of this one bay to lay their eggs all at this one specific time. But something we did has disrupted the habits of the horseshoe crabs. And then once the birds get there, that that critical stop is gone right and so it it shows you that things we do here will probably affect things elsewhere too yeah and maybe to put it in our perspective it's like you're taking a trip uh you're, you're going on vacation and you're taking a drive and you have everything packed 
you have your food, uh, you know, you got your, got your gas and your clothing, everything packed up and you start to drive and you get to your first, you have everything mapped out. You got, you know, your stops, where you're eating, where you're staying, where you're sleeping, where you're grabbing gas and you get to the first gas station. You're almost on E and there's no gas station. Yep. And then, you know, that, that's, that, like, that's probably the most simplest that's I can exactly. make it. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. And then, and of course, what, what's your response? Your response is like, not to be rude. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, it looks like I'm stranded in the desert now, you know? Yeah. I've driven yeah. out West a few times and like gas, if you don't plan your gas out, right. And you don't stop, you run out of gas. Right. There's no options. Right. You're lucky to get like a gas station every, I don't know, 50 miles maybe. And that might be the deal breaker. Right. right There'll be signs like last gas, like get, make sure you top off. Just looking back at the list, I'm sure there's so many, so many that we missed, but I'm going to uh, like recommend some articles and stuff in there too, because I will yeah. like inevitably just kind of ramble and stuff, you know? And so I'll give you some resources from uh, people that sound intelligent, you know, <laughs> it's better, better to cover, uh, cover your right. tail. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so now that we've kind of covered those main topics, I think we're going to head into our last commercial break. But then when we come back, Keith and I are going to discuss climate change or just anthropogenic changes as well as natural changes to birds. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar. Shampoo done right for you and the planet. Well, you made it this far. This is the third segment of Birdology with Ranger <laughs> Keith. <laughs> so this segment is going to be, it's going to be a little gloomy, uh, but it's also going to be informative. And then we're also going to end it out on a good note. So bear with us. We, we would like to inform you on climate change and, and the different Things that have been seen, they're trends that we have seen in the scientific community based on our aviary friends. So without further ado, I would like to hand it over to Keith and maybe he could talk about migration patterns since we've discussed it a few different times throughout the episode. Sure. I mean, we I think we've touched on a lot of this a few times in here just a little bit, but I think as, as mm -hmm. far as climate change goes, there's some resources that I could point people out to in some books and things like that. But uh, so I won't go into like very 
species specific examples of some of the trends we're seeing in kind of ecological disturbance with uh, with birds in response to climate change but one of the ones that would be easy for you to think about in your everyday life like right now we're in spring migration in the eastern u.s one of the things we're, we're seeing is kind of a disruption in the normal patterns of when foliage comes out when insects are hatching when insects are like plentiful enough to support a population of their predators and those are things that have to line up perfectly with not just migration for birds to migrate from like south america fly across the gulf of mexico then come all the way up through north america and end up in the boreal forest but like not just to make that trip but also to support themselves and thrive enough to reproduce when they get there and so if the if the insects aren't there in the proper numbers or if they've already come and developed into pupae before the birds get there so that they can feed their young then you're looking at uh higher mortalities in in the young or maybe the the parents don't get to reproduce at all because now all of their habitat is fringe habitat now it's not suitable for them once they've arrived because that window of suitability has already come and gone and as those climates change they have to go farther to reach that suitable habitat and so it's disrupting a lot of that there are also not just factors in birds that are going from one continent to another but also think about things like elevation because there's some birds that don't migrate from north america south america and back there are some that just migrate up and down the mountain you know yeah and so as as things change those environments change for them too and so maybe the top of the mountain doesn't get as cold as it once did like maybe it's not supporting the same ecosystem at the top as it once did and where are we going to go now what are, what are we going to do now the whole ecosystem has changed and when you look at that in combination with things like drastic habitat change like anthropogenic habitat change just from developments or mm-hmm. pollution or what have you then you look at habitat fragmentation like some things I know a lot of people don't think about this, but you just look at things like grasslands, large grasslands. We've lost 99% of our grasslands in North America. That's a critical habitat, and we used to have loads of it. We don't have very much of it at all now. But even things like the different levels of an intact forest, there's a difference between like your 10-acre patch of woodland and what would be suitable forest for birds that live in the woodland interior those birds can't escape from things like brown-eyed cowbirds or nesting predators or things like that anymore so right when you combine climate change with things like habitat disruption habitat fragmentation habitat loss altogether invasive species invasive plants invasive predators there are loads of things all at once and i think that um as uh, like anthropogenic changes to the environment and um, and climate change speed up, we're going to see that kind of exponentially rise. Yeah. To where a lot of, I, I think especially our migratory birds that are moving from, you know, so many things have to line up perfectly from this for this bird to get from Brazil to New York, you know? Right. So many things have to line up along that pathway. They have to be able to feed and like, I don't know how many times they increase their own body weight to make that migration, but then they have to be able to thrive when they get there. So, so many different environmental factors have to line up all across the way. 
one of the best primer on effects of climate change in birds. You can, if you're looking for peer reviewed literature for the primary literature on that sort of stuff, you can go down a rabbit hole. I would encourage people that are, like aren't familiar with that to just start off with the USDA article. That's a great way to get started. There's a USDA article called Effects of Climate Change on Terrestrial Birds of North America. Read through that and then go through into the related links and recommended reading. Most of it is also going to be primary literature too. So you're looking at peer reviewed journal articles. Yep, that's if the you, idea. Yeah, if you, want, review. if you want some light reading, that's also really, these are the books that I, I've probably recommended these books three times in this podcast, but some of my favorite books to get people started with just thinking about broad ecosystems and how birds can show us how those things connect are Scott Weidensall's book. Ken Kaufman also has a great one, but that's if you are, especially if you're in like Ohio, Ken Kaufman has a great one. It's uh, this one just came out last year, a season on the wind inside the world of spring migration by Ken Kaufman. Brilliant book. Nice. These two are some of my favorite bird books of all time that aren't like field guides. Living on the Wind Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds by Scott Widensall. I remember when I bought this book, I was in college. It was recommended to me when I first started getting into birding by our ornithology professor. And this was back in the day when you could buy books on Amazon for a penny and then you paid for <laughs> shipping. It's pre-Amazon Prime. I got some gray hairs going on in here. It's pre-Amazon Prime back in my day. But, but yeah. <laughs> This is brilliant. This one just came out recently, and this is like the follow-up to uh, Living on the Wind. This is A World on the Wing, uh, and this is where Scott Widensall is not just looking. Uh, he's kind of just expanding into um, Asia and Africa to a little nice. bit more than he did in the first book, uh, but this is this is a brilliant book. Nice. Nice. You know, and, and one other thing I think you didn't mention with climate change is also the drastic like the increase in severity of weather, right? That's also right. going to contribute to the change in, in migration pattern, but also just, you know, disrupting the ecosystems where they're trying to sit down to continue throughout their migration paths. Right. And that not even happen in just ways that you would initially think, think about things like severe storms affecting birds while they're, while they're all migrating migration. One of our, like our main songbird migration happens in large clumps. So large, you can watch it on Doppler radar. You can watch oh, birds wow. take off they, for years. They didn't know what it was. They called them sky angels. You would just see this come out Whoa. right at dusk as all these passerines, all these songbirds would come up out of the, out of the trees and head out on migration. And so you're looking at large clumps. And if that all gets hit by a storm, maybe they don't just fall out and like run into something, but a lot of times they starve to death because they're burning so many calories. Birds have a much higher metabolic rate than we do. Not just over forests and things too. There's a thing called fallout that happens periodically and some birders get super excited about it just to see several different species. But if you think about birds that are crossing a large body of water overnight, a bird like the size of my thumb is going to fly across the Gulf of Mexico in the middle of the night. There's no That's place wild. to stop and rest, burning a ridiculous amount of calories. Suddenly they have a headwind and they could starve to death before morning and just fall out of the sky. And so a lot of times what, what happens when there's a fallout is those birds are exhausted and the very first sight of land, they just hit the beach and so you'll wow. see american red starts 
all kinds of warblers, everything all at once, just on the ground on the beach. Wow. That's what, a, that's what a fallout is, but not just that stuff too, but think about long-term ecological effects, things like, um, fire, what we're seeing right now. Very true. Yep. Not just the effects on fire of like actually burning the birds, but changing the landscape, allowing different, uh, types of plants to, to go through that it wouldn't normally be in there. Right. High intensity fires are, are a big no, no, right. Uh, low intensity is fine. High intensity fires is bad like low right. intensity fires have happened for thousands i, I i'm just gonna say thousands but very 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 right that time. that system is used to that that system yeah. has adapted to that that's that's part of it but but intensity fires a lot of times you're encouraging invasives that burn at higher temperature and just destroys habitat right and i don't i don't remember that's the correct scientific term but whenever you get a high intensity fire it's more than likely it's more probabilistic to go not only on the ground, but treetop to treetop, but yeah. like low intensity fires will, will burn along the ground. So mm -hmm. the high intensity fires, you know, just, just take out the treetops, which takes out where the birds are hanging out, you know? Right. And even right. just high intensity fires on the ground. If you have different bird species that tend to burrow during fire events, they'll still get cooked out because it's so intense. It's mm -hmm. so, you know, <laughs> literally right. burn up under there, yeah. unfortunately. Um, yeah. I mean, fires, Fires are a big thing. I had a fire ecology podcast way back when. That was a really good podcast. That's cool. And yeah, and I can't remember the forestry agency that did a, a study that said that if we had three degree increase with our our WUI, our wildland urban interface, if we had a three degree Celsius global temperature increase, you would see a six hundred percent increase in wildfire. Wow. In areas that are arid. Yeah. You know, in areas that are fire prone, mm -hmm. which is rough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. Right. Um, it extends fire season too. Mm -hmm. So there's also that. And there's also one more thing that I would, would like to touch on. And, and of course you can add after this, but just our buildings alone. I, I didn't realize how big of an effect that our buildings have on like taking out bird populations. Cause they just think that they can fly through a structure and it just hit glass and it right. comes it comes back to you know evolution we have developed these skyscrapers these buildings or whatever it doesn't have to be a skyscraper just buildings in record time mm -hmm. and these you know, evolution is very very slow mm. we've been able to do this because of technology i argue that our evolution has not caught up with our technology and that's the reason why we are the way we are but why everybody's stressed out <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nevertheless birds have not evolved to understand that this is something solid you know mm -hmm. and they're yeah. dying at unprecedented rates because of our structures kind of mm -hmm. crazy that's the that's the the second highest cause of like anthropogenic like human related bird mortality is is uh windows and and utility towers yeah yeah oh yeah like, that's true true utilities right. with things like light pollution it affects their ability to navigate uh they may see the reflection of something oh, yeah. and think that it's something different and fly into it like it's a like they'll see the reflection of a perch or something like that or even if they're on migration they just see the reflection of nothing but with radio towers one of the bigger things is those giant blinking red lights in the middle of the night a lot of times they will be become disoriented by the red light and they just begin circling and they'll circle and circle and circle until they wow. run out of gas or they hit a wire 
Wow. Wow. I didn't even think about that. And I didn't even think about light pollution, which makes sense. I mean, this definitely involves like the bird species that are traveling at night and mm, also which rely is most, maybe, of the, most of the songbirds. Yeah. And they also probably rely on like star navigation, I'm assuming. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the big problem. I, I really wish that like most big cities would like, like Flagstaff here in Arizona, they, they have an observatory up there, so they have to, you know, under, they have to understand that there's light pollution. So they, mm -hmm. they change their, their street lights and signs and whatnot, what have you to more friendly application. I forget what that's called. That's going to bother me, but either way, I mean, that's very important. Yeah. I recently read a paper about a, like a large commercial building in I can't remember the name of the paper either. It was a large commercial building in Chicago that just looked at different times of turning off the lights or just especially during peak bird migration and significantly nice. decrease the mortality of birds during the migratory season. Ooh. It's a pretty easy fix. Yeah. Oh, how familiar are, are you with fireworks? So I've seen a lot of like different studies, different people just talking about how fireworks really go after birds. They get shocked by it. Yeah, I can see um, that. Happening. Look into that. I think I should. I think you'd I be interested in. I haven't read any papers on that. Yeah, I, I can't remember the numbers, but just the the amount of <laughs> the amount, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. The <laughs> amount of numbers yeah. of deaths that come out of the Fourth of July is insane. Hmm. Yeah. Like just insane. So I'm not really excited about fireworks that much anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at least maybe in a forest. I mean, if it's over. Man, even even over water, I think you're you're still dealing with it, but it's definitely less. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's something to think about. Do your research, but yeah, I'll check I know it out. I know that's a big one. Man, light pollution. And I definitely knew about that. Whenever I was looking into vultures, they said that like that, like the the poison and utility lines were the big ones mm -hmm. for sure. Ken Kaufman's book talks about light pollution at length. It's pretty good. Okay. You gotta know about that. And, and even just like you might be wondering, like, what does that what does that matter to me? I mean, we still vote. Right. Sure. So you could also voice in, and talk to your local representatives more easily than you could talk to a senator, or, you know, <laughs> someone yeah. in the House. But talk, talk to like, you know, right. Talk, Chamber talk of Commerce. To yeah. And that seems much easier feat. Small sure. local changes for sure. But I don't know. Would you like to end? On, on a better note here, uh, please. Or, or do you have anything to add to that before we move no, on? No, like I said, if you're if you're putting this on YouTube or whatever, if you if you put things in the description, I can link a bunch of different articles and stuff like that. So that you know, would love that resources for sure. Send me the articles and I'll, and I'll be sure to put yeah. it up. That way, everybody can get a good education on this. Yeah, because maybe we can finish out the episode by talking about your spark bird. What do you think? Yeah. So among birders and stuff, a lot of people have what they call a spark bird, which is the nerdiest thing ever, I guess. It's, it's, it is like, so I grew up as a naturalist and stuff like that. And I was always outside and, and always been interested in doing frog call surveys and catching snakes and looking at all this different stuff. And I was not into birds, but uh, the your spark bird is the bird that you see that you're like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. and that's what gets you hooked into it. That's what gets you to start looking at things. And to me, that's 
that's uh, just you are opening your perspective to a much wider world than you were previously aware of. And mine, I, I had already been working for Tennessee State Parks for a while. I was mainly all my like environmental education stuff was mostly in uh, reptiles and amphibians. That was what my undergrad research was on. I didn't care about birds very much. Uh, but I was living at the visitor center at Real Foot Lake State Park. There's a little apartment in there for their seasonal staff. And I was living in there at the time and I was doing most of my research in that area on reptiles and amphibians. And one of my best friends was working on that survey with me. His name was Stephen Pitts and his dad was the ornithology professor at UT Martin where I went to school. And I idolized Dr. Pitts, coolest dude. And, uh, he's retired now but he he just called me up out of the blue one day and he was like oh hey keith there's a are you down at a real foot and i was like yeah i'm i'm down here i'm at the cabin and he was like uh there's a real weird bird uh over close to you you want to jump out there with me and go see it i was like yeah sure and uh i uh climbed in the biology department truck with him and drove out into like rural northwest tennessee in the middle of winter okay so tennessee doesn't get snow very often northwest tennessee is like when you think about like rocky top tennessee and i'm on like the flat swampy side of the state it's not mountains and stuff it is brown and gray that is the landscape <laughs> so flat you can see tomorrow coming in you know and uh so we're driving around in these we left the beautiful swamps where i called home and we go out in these soybean fields you know that's it and uh, we just pull over the truck in the middle of this soybean field. And I was like, this is where it's at. And he's like, yeah, this is where it's at. And we looked up and there was it's a bird's called a rough-legged hawk. And they are okay. normally way farther north than Tennessee. Every now and again, they'll, they'll pop in for a little bit in the wintertime. Usually it's a juvenile that's getting pushed further down into fringe habitat. But we were looking at this rough-legged hawk that was sitting on a power line. Like these... These are one of the few uh, hawks that have feathers that go all the way down their toes. And oh. uh, the thing is just incredible. And I was looking at that and I was like, where is this from? He was like, way north, way north. I was like, why are we looking at it? He was like, it's not supposed to be here. It's here by accident. And I was looking at that bird, like realizing that it was, I come from like a town of less than 5,000 people in West Tennessee. Just like, small town kid you know never thought i would do anything or amount to anything you know what i mean and at the time i was like a junior in college and i was sitting there under this power line in this drab landscape where i grew up looking at a bird that in its juvenile year had been farther than i ever thought i would ever go like had seen had seen more things and been farther than i ever thought i would go and it just like blew my mind and i was nice. like instantly hooked dude and so i started started reading and studying how far birds go and where they go and when they leave and when they come back and that's how that's what i've been doing ever since that's amazing so what you're saying is that y'all need to find your spark bird yeah <laughs> for still, sure. that's still, and when you ask me like what my favorite bird and stuff is that kind of stuff happens week to week too like today we're in the mm -hmm. middle of the the songbird migration right now today i heard a kentucky warbler 
was the first one I've heard this year. It just dropped right in. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I'm at a park that's like a mile from my house. It's a tiny little park. And but nice. I'm like the only one that goes bird watching there. But uh, I was over there and it just popped right in and started calling. I was like, man, there's no telling where this thing came up, came from. And then now it is just in this tiny little park, you know, in the middle awesome. of West Tennessee. And so that kind of stuff, I get a, like a new favorite bird every day just because something new happens. I'm like, whoa, man, there's no telling where all you've been. Wow. And now you're here. Wow. Hey, just one more quick thing. I don't mean to one-up you or anything, but you said that you came from a small town, about 5,000 people. Yeah. I grew, I grew up in a village in western Pennsylvania that had like oh, 200, yeah. 200 people. Oh, maybe. yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> like where, uh, where you go to a gas station and somebody's like, What's your mom and daddy's name? Or oh, for sure. It may not say like, sound like that up there. Oh, uh, it's it, you know it, you're pretty dang close, but <laughs> <laughs> no, you're you're solely right. I've had that like that awe moment where I said you know like when Matt Broussard messaged me, I was like, it was like my holy crap moment. Like wow, you know like it's a great big yeah, world out there. Yeah, anybody's capable of anything. So, yeah. but man, Keith, it's been a great time, Ranger Keith. Talking about birds, talking about your story, it's been wonderful. I hope that we've inspired or just, you know, uh, informed some some great people out there on birds and their importance to to the environment. And you know, it's it was just great having a good conversation with you, man. Yes, yeah, Sam. Thanks for having me, man. Really yeah. appreciate it. It's fun hanging out with you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, ciao. See you later. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest star, Keith, for sharing his knowledge and vast expertise. Also, go check out Keith on TikTok, at Ranger Keith, and give blood, sweat, and tears a listen whenever you get some free time. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by myself, marketed by Courtney Page, and Maria Positeri, as well as being QC'd by my man, Panya Pit Erickson. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us in the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben's Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.